Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, all the opposition wants is some questions answered on the We Scandal. Why is the Prime Minister talking about an election during a pandemic? Many have touted the carbon tax as the most palatable way to fight climate change. But are we seeing the results other than a government revenue stream? And how will COVID-19 affect holiday retail? And we go for a ride on a skateboard with some cranberry juice and Fleetwood Mac. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Okay, so COVID-19 has altered Easter, Thanksgiving, Halloween, and now possibly Christmas. Not to mention many birthdays, weddings, and anniversaries. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you cry. You can laugh at my dad. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. What? What was that? What do you mean laughing? Laughing at me. He depresses everybody, and I'm supposed to pull it all out? Come on, what the heck is that? Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Uh, week number 32. And life is grand. What a beautiful day is it is outside. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that via the website. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. The podcast edition of the commentary talking about what's going on in Nova Scotia and uh, indigenous fisheries and such out there. Feel free to weigh in on that. We need more than just talk here if we're going to solve these issues. Uh, Love to hear from you. Facebook and Twitter, you'll find it there. And uh, always, the phone lines are open. We're going to start things off with uh, the We Charity scandal as uh, it is now. You know, I think all we want to do is find out questions here to what's going on. And somehow that's triggering an election. I don't understand that. We just we don't want an election. We just want answers to the question. That's all. Don't get excited. Don't get upset. We're just asking questions. Just want to know about the Wee scandal. Nobody said anything about an election. But, man, whatever is going on in these documents must be bad if that's uh, the threat. You, know, you either uh, you, we, we either uh, put this uh, under the table, we either shoo this away, or we go into an election. Um, it's kind of bizarre when you think about it that, uh, that asking questions gets us to this point. Here's what government house leader Pablo Rodriguez had to say in regard to all of this. The government considers this motion to be a matter of confidence. The truth is simple. MPs cannot establish a new committee with sweeping powers to investigate what they call the government corruption and assume there is no consequence. Because if they do that, they're saying that the government is corrupt. All right, let's bring in uh, Chris Warkington, uh, uh, a conservative MP and on the Ethics Committee, MP for Grand Prairie, Mac- uh, Grand Prairie Mackenzie, and with us now. Chris, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, I mean, I, I think all Canadians want is some answers to questions. Why, are we, why is this turning into an election call? Well, it's really unbelievable. It's unprecedented in all my time here in Ottawa. I've been here for 15 years, never seen anything like this. Basically, in a minority government, the government still is hoping to dictate to parliamentarians as to what they can 
what what they can dig into and what they can't. Obviously, there's major major questions with regards to the We Charity, it's uh, and the government's relationship with it. We know that significant amounts of money were given to members of the prime minister's family uh, by this charity. Of course, a commitment by the federal government of nearly a billion dollars to that charity without basically a sole source contract. So Canadians deserve answers. I mean, we're we're talking about significant amounts of money uh, without any transparency. The moment that there were questions asked, uh, it, it began. It, it, what we saw is basically an unraveling of the entire uh, deal with that charity, and of course, subsequently, the the unraveling of the entire charity. Uh, there's no question that there are question, unanswered questions with regards to this. But now we have the prime minister saying, if parliamentarians are demand, uh, demanding accountability and transparency, we're, we're going to have an election. Uh, because basically, if parliamentarians are calling for transparency and openness, uh, they can't—they don't support our government, uh, and and I just think it's unprecedented. I, I think what the prime minister effectively is saying: if we won't endorse corruption, uh, we're going to the polls. Uh, we don't support their government. Well, frankly, we're getting to the point where we don't support the government, but we believe that Canadians deserve to know what is behind. The curtain here, obviously the Prime Minister has gone through unprecedented measures to try to keep these dogs. Do- uh, have we lost the Canadians before we go to the polls? So, um, again, Canadians are trying to understand this because the Prime Minister is painting an, uh, a picture that you, the Conservatives, are forcing an election because you won't let the wee scandal go. Uh, again, I don't understand how we get to... Uh, we'd like to ask some questions and how all of a sudden, well, we're not answering the questions. And if you don't have confidence in us, we're going to throw an election uh, or we're going to call an election rather. Uh, what do you say to the fact that they're painting the picture that this is all your fault? Well, you know, quite frankly, I, I wish Canadians, I hope Canadians do hear that, that conservatives are, are asking for transparency and accountability and that the prime minister has said that that, that is un, unacceptable and he won't, he won't stand for it. I, I hope that Canadians hear that because uh, that, that's exactly what's going on right now. Uh, conservatives are a- asking questions. We're, we're demanding answers. And the prime minister is saying uh, that's unacceptable and he won't stand for it. So say this does lead to a confidence vote. What are the possibilities there? Again, can can your leader stand up and saying, I'm not voting for this. I don't want an election. I just want answers to these questions. Well, look, we're committed to getting answers for Canadians, and we 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 know and believe that uh, there there is no reason that this has to be a confidence vote. Uh, the prime minister is suggesting that we're going to have an election over this. Um, you know, I guess it's he's the prime minister; it's his right to go to the governor general and and request a uh, an election. I think it's an unprecedented. Uh, move by by a desperate prime minister at a time when uh, we shouldn't be going to the polls when we when we see the, the current economic and, and health crisis that every Canadian is experiencing. Uh, I don't believe that now is a time for an election. I think right now is a time for answers. And uh, if the prime minister is going to put it on on uh, force an election because he doesn't want to be transparent, well, that's for Canadians to determine if or not that's the right move by him. So do you feel your party is conveying to Canadians uh, enough that the question is, from where I sit, we either uh, uh, have an election or we don't get answers uh, to the WE scandal? If we're asking questions as to what happened with the WE scandal, that somehow that triggers an election of of non-confidence, due to non-confidence, are Canadians... 
understanding this? Are Canadians understanding what is happening here? Well, I don't think Canadians understand it because I don't understand it. I, I, and I'm sitting here. I, I can't believe that in a democratic country like Canada, we have a prime minister that will use these unprecedented you know, undertakings just simply to keep secret secret. Uh, there must be a major bombshell in those documents that he would go first prorogue parliament to to make sure that he shuts down the availability of these documents. And now when the documents might come back again, uh, he, he's threatening an election. This this is this is unprecedented. And clearly the prime minister is putting his own political that that is is un, unimaginable. And I, I can imagine that the vast majority of Canadians don't understand why why this would happen. I certainly don't understand it in, in a democratic country like Canada. So uh, we were just—I was just watching Aaron O'Toole's press conference, a Conservative leader, earlier on this morning, and uh, he said that okay, they're going to change the name from the anti-corruption or whatever it was called to a much, much longer name. Where does this go from here? W- what happens now, Chris? Well, basically, uh, we're going to continue to fight for, tr- for for answers. Canadians deserve it. We're going to work with other opposition MPs uh, across you know party lines to make sure that Canadians get answered answers i i guess it's in the prime minister's court i mean we're, we're clearly not going to back down from from demanding answers like it is our constitutional responsibility to do we're going to continue to do our job the prime minister should do his job which is to make those documents available uh, and then answer as to why he engaged in whatever it is that he's trying to cover up um and, and if he believes that the canadians will accept whatever it is that he's done well, well, then, then, then he should proudly say it. But uh, the idea that he, um, you know, that that it's this that it's this cover up, and and he's using these unprecedented measures to try to keep things covered up. I, you know, I guess it's in his court. He can force an election if he wants to. But I think Canadians would punish him for doing it. Can he force an election, or what if he calls a confidence vote? And it will it automatically rule in his favor? I mean, again, all parties, everyone has said they don't want an election. The only thing they're asking for is answers to questions. So what if he what what if he calls a confidence vote and everyone votes confidence in him? And this just continues on and, and you continue doing what you're doing. Well, the, the issue is, is we have a decision to make. He is suggesting that if you have if we have confidence in his government, we have to engage in be part of his cover up. We refuse to do that. We will not vote in. And what does that do to the? And what does that do to the investigations that are going on? If that happens, if 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 we if we vote the way the prime minister wants us to vote, that would mean that we would shut down all of the investigations into right. all of these corruption allegations. We won't do that. So is this a, a game of political chicken now? I mean, well, that's, we're we're that's going. Canadians will end up going to the polls because we don't have information on the we scandal? That's exactly what the Prime Minister is engaged in right now. He's suggesting that if we continue to demand answers, then he will force an election. And and we know what this is all about. We, we, we know that uh, he knows that the NDP are in a very vulnerable position. They don't have the money to go to an election. They don't have, uh, they, they are not prepared for it. So he, he is banking on the NDP, uh, backing down. Uh, that that really is what this threat is all about. He knows that we as conservatives are not going to back down. We have uh, committed to to Canadians uh, ever since the election that we were going to get to the bottom of what was going on in terms of many, many scandals in this government. Obviously, this is a more recent one, but we're going to continue to do that. But I, I think he's the prime minister is counting on the NDP uh, backing down and, and not supporting this motion in the end. 
in the end, who uh, in the end, with many parties, uh, including the NDP, not necessarily wanting an election at this time or in the financial position to uh, to have an election, uh, is it really in the Liberals? only in the Liberals' best interest to hold an election now. I mean, they're the, they would be the incumbent, obviously, uh, taking advantage of, of the pandemic popularity that all leaders uh, get during a crisis like this. Uh, are, are they trying to call an election? They want you to bend here. Absolutely. That, that is the only, the only thing to take away from this. Clearly, the Prime Minister has decided this is a, it would be advantageous for him to have an election. Otherwise, he wouldn't be threatening it. He would find some other way to get through the next number of weeks, uh, but he's only threatening an election because he believes it would be in his best interest to have one during the pandemic. Absolutely. So why does he just not come out and say that instead of making it look like it's the opposition that's forcing his hand? Because in politics, it's always better to blame somebody else when you when you have to uh, make a difficult decision. So how long is this going to go on, Chris? What do you see happening in the next week? Well, you know, it, it, this is, you know, it, it's a very interesting time. I couldn't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. Tomorrow will be when the vote is. I, I, I'm hopeful that the opposition parties will, will support and stand with us in support of transparency and openness. Uh, if, if one of the other parties bends, well, then the prime minister will get his way and, uh, this will get swept under the carpet. So, uh, you know, I guess we'll see what happens. You know, of course, the prime minister continues to threaten an election. I think it's, it's un, unimaginable that he would force an election just to engage in this cover-up. But uh, clearly he, he believes that what's included in these documents is worth worth covering up. It's worth humiliating his caucus. It's, it's worth uh, breaking all of his promises in terms of transparency and openness uh, to keep these, these documents hidden. And uh, I, I guess we'll go to, go to the polls if the prime minister decides that that's what's going to happen. So there's, there's a number of things that could happen. Obviously, what I want to see happen is these documents be released to our committee so that we can dig into them and find out exactly what happened before we have an election. I think Canadians deserve to know what went on and why the prime minister wants to engage in this cover-up so in, in such an extreme way before they're, they're forced to go to the polls. And is it not in the best interests of the Conservatives to not go to an election, considering you've just elected a new leader and obviously you want Canadians to get to know him? Absolutely. We, we believe, you know, we, we'd love to ha- have uh, a longer runway before we have an election. There's no question. But I can tell you that we're not going to capitulate. We're not going to support the prime minister's cover up just to avoid an election. We believe that Canadians uh, deserve, uh, you know, they're paying us to hold this government to account. Uh, we believe that we have a job to do. We're not going to abandon our responsibilities uh, simply for our, our own political benefit. We are going to do what Canadians would expect us to do, and that's hold this government to account, you know, engage in in uh, the required uh, review of what this government is engaged with in and get these documents released. A- any speculation as to what is so top secret in these uh, we documents that the, that the government would go to this extent to, to to keep it quiet? I mean, is there any is there any speculation about what sort of information could be in there that that they obviously don't want uh, released? I suspect that there are contradictions to what has been established as fact up until this point, included in those documents. Chris Warkington has been with us, Conservative MP on the Ethics Committee and MP for Grand Prairie Mackenzie. Chris, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. 
Thanks so much. Take care. We are talking about the We Charity scandal, and uh, somehow that has led to calls of an election, even though apparently nobody wants an election. Yet, uh, you know, somehow uh, we're we're potentially thrust into one just by putting up our hands and asking for more questions about we or asking more questions about we. Let's bring in Tim, uh, Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm good, buddy, but you're depressing me with all these weeks. I mean, I'm 32. My God, has it been that long? Wow. It has. Wow, I'm, wow, thinking wow. Of, I'm thinking of dropping that and just, you know, not, not even, you know, and then maybe coming back to it at about 50 just to remind everybody. Oh, yeah, remember? Uh, opposition, uh, first of all, uh, I, I think all opposition wants here is answers to questions. How is that all of a sudden, uh, how is that all of a sudden uh, turning to talk of an election? Uh, well, because the liberals are resistant to provide any of the documents that for for whatever reason, and they make it look worse on themselves when they do, uh, that, that have been acquired or sorry, required and requested by uh, by the opposition parties. I mean, look, uh, I, I think the, the government is calculating two things. One, that public opinion is on their side and history is on their side, meaning they're high now and past scandals in these early days don't necessarily stick with you. The second thing, uh, so you can pull the trigger, and the second thing they're they're counting on is the fact that they have a willing partner in the NDP who's not going to push the envelope because it's not in their interest yet to uh, to have an election. So the Liberals are, you know, playing it a little rough at the moment uh, and, uh, and and making this debate about a potential election emerge yet again. But in the end, as you said, the NDP will will toe the the party line with the Liberals. There will be no election, and do the we uh, scandal uh, committees just continue? What, what's solved here? Why do all of this? Well, O'Toole, Aaron O'Toole, I think it was er- yeah, it was earlier today, has made a move to say, look, Liberals, if the irritant is the name of this committee, which was a bit of a stretch, which was the opposition and their politics. Yeah the anti-corruption committee you knew the liberals were never why do they go over the top that way why don't they just they like you know themselves they can't can they they're just about as the liberals in that respect yeah so you know it, it it made it seem that their overt partisanship was uh was the main motivation and accountability was the secondary thing and then the liberals got their back up i mean the, the opposition is entirely right that there should be accountability. Certainly there was unity of purpose around spending and checks and balances that were built in there. If all these parties played it the right way, it would be a winning thing. Yeah, there might be some money that was not spent appropriately, but committing to be accountable is 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 a useful thing in this day and age, I think. Can the prime minister convince Canadians it's the opposition that is triggering this election, not him, that it's them that wants the election, when in fact, uh, obviously, out of anybody, it's in his best interest to have an election, the sooner the better? I don't know if he can, but he's certainly going to try. And, he, you know, he's regained some popularity, as we discussed. And it's hard. If the opposition, the, the challenge is this, if the government doesn't give the opposition any of these documents, uh, and they force a confidence motion, then the opposition is going to be recycling. And this is where the opposition kind of catch themselves recycling, you know, previously used information. So, you know, for two or three days and maybe in a debate, there's some 
punches that are uh, landed by the opposition against the prime minister saying, you know, look, uh, you wouldn't give us this document, but you wouldn't do this, you wouldn't do that. But if there's nothing to focus a debate beyond empty documents, that's not going to be the worst thing in the world for the Liberal government, right? Is the prime minister trying to trigger an election here with popularity Um, being high as it is for leaders during a pandemic? I don't think so. I think they're just trying to um, to threaten right now. I don't think they actually want an election either. I think there's just too many variables again with the with COVID-19. Not much has changed, uh, Scott, since the throne speech a few weeks ago. I mean, those same variables uh, that uh, were, you know, risky for an election then are still present. And we're in the midst of, you know, what is supposed to be our particularly in Ontario, Quebec, our most pronounced uh, wave of of COVID-19. Now, if something goes very wrong during all of this, then the the shenanigans around we will be forgotten and the focus will be on the government for letting something bad happen or they'll be blamed for whatever happens. So I don't think they actually want an election. I think they're just using the threat of an election to put people in their place. But, you know, as stranger things have happened. I still don't believe it's going to happen. Uh, but uh, but there you are. Obviously, uh, many will say they prorogue government to push all this to the back burner. Uh, it really had nothing to do with the dramatic throne speech and such. Now, obviously, and some pundits said way back when, they would have been, maybe yourself even, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that they might have been better just to get this over with in the summer. Uh, but instead, now it's obviously uh, coming back to haunt them. Why not just release the documents? Like it, it, Again, th- is there something so damaging in there that they're going to this extent, first with prorog- prorog- uh, prorogation and now threatening an election? Who would know, right? I, I mean, it, it would seem yeah. based on their behavior, there's things that they don't want out there. How damaging are they? Who knows? I mean, this may be a setup for for the liberals, uh, for their economic statement, right? If they can hold off, they don't want to distract from or water down what will be their next big political moment, which is their economic statement sometime supposedly before the end of next month. So uh, they want to keep the frame on the pandemic where they do better with the public in terms of the way they supposedly have managed it. And again, who would know if they've managed it well or not? from an economic perspective, because we don't see the numbers at the moment in in great detail. So I think they're playing for some time until the economic statement comes to continue what they hope is a more positive reframing of their government. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Stay well. I'm looking forward to joining you, Scott, in week 34, 35, 36, and every other goddamn week ahead of us. You take here, care, my Here son. come the triple digits, buddy. Here come the triple digits. <laughs> All right, buddy. You, you take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Is the carbon tax that was put in place by the true uh, Trudeau government a fake environmental policy? That's what the Canadian Taxpayers Federation of Ontario says. Let's bring in Jasmine Moulton, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Ontario Director, and is with us now. Jasmine, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure. So, you know, many have said that the carbon tax is the most palatable way to deal with climate change. Is that not the case? 
Well, it depends on how high we're talking. So the parliamentary budget officer said it would have to be much higher than it already is. And they said that it would have to go up to uh, $102 per per liter um, to work. The U.S. Uh, the United Nations has also said that at its current price that the carbon tax won't work. Um, but the reality, uh, I think, can be found in the numbers. There's a lot of proof that carbon taxes in Canada have simply not worked. So British Columbia actually introduced a carbon tax before Trudeau imposed one on the rest of the country. And it's the highest in Canada. And since they introduced it, their emissions have gone up by 7%. Now, we were told that, uh, you know, with a carbon tax, emissions, it will stop emissions from going up, but we've seen they've continued to go up. And while some people might conclude, well, maybe it just needs to be higher to work, uh, we actually saw the opposite in Ontario. Ontario didn't have a carbon tax before 2018. And from 2005 to 2018, we saw Ontario's emissions drop by nearly 20% without a carbon tax. So unfortunately for Trudeau, uh, the carbon tax seems to be a lot more about ideology than reality. So uh, going back to just, you know, obviously it has to be a certain height. It has to be a certain expense in order for it to to have an impact. So why not just raise it? What would that do? (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because Trudeau is actually a step ahead. He is introducing what we're calling a second carbon tax. He calls it the clean fuel standard. But essentially, this is a regulatory regime. It will make, uh, you know, put a tax on carbon within fossil fuels. And that tax will be placed at $350 a ton, which is over 10 times the price of the existing carbon tax. And uh, the Canadians for Affordable Energy have said that the result of Trudeau's second carbon tax could lead to 30,000 job losses across the country and also create an exodus of $22 billion in capital investment from the country. So uh, these sorts of policies are just economically devastating. Um, but I know that there are probably a lot of you know people listening to your show that, that like myself, care very much about the environment as well. Um, but that's the whole point here is that carbon taxes are not even good environmental policy because we see that uh, even with carbon taxes emissions just continue to climb in Canada and abroad. I thought British Columbia was sort of the poster province for all of this. (laughs) They are in terms of how much the tax costs. It's the most expensive in British Columbia but uh, like I said since they've introduced their tax uh, emissions have gone up by seven percent so if anything British Columbia should be Uh, case study showing to the rest of the country that this is not serious environmental policy. Um, The whole point of the carbon tax is to reduce emissions or stop them from going up. But what we've seen is that uh, in these jurisdictions, again, British Columbia has the highest carbon tax in the country. Their emissions continue to climb. But I think that we need to... What about, let me ask you this, Jasmine, though, what about if they didn't have the tax, it would have climbed even more? Well, like we say in Ontario that didn't have a carbon tax, our emissions dropped by 20% uh, from 2005 to 2018. So there's a lot that provinces can do to reduce their emissions. But unfortunately, the carbon tax does not seem to be the answer. But again, Canada's uh, contributions to global emissions, Canada contributes about 1.5% of global emissions. So even if we set our carbon tax at a million dollars and halted all economic activity in the country today, uh, unfortunately, China would make up that difference in a matter of weeks. 
so really, it's not that Canada should do nothing, um, which is the case with the carbon tax currently, um, but it's that on, that Canada should work with, uh, you know, through international trade deals, uh, work with other countries to, uh, to help them lower their uh, global emissions as well, because they far outstrip Canada's contribution. What about uh, those who may accuse you of being a climate change denier because um, you're not buying into this? Is is have you been accused of uh, being a climate change denier because you're not supporting this? Quite the contrary. I care very much about the environment. And the fact that I wrote this article uh, that we're talking about today that was recently published in the Toronto Sun um, titled Trudeau's Carbon Tax is Fake Environmental Policy. The reason I wrote that is because so often people criticize the carbon tax um, on an economic basis. They say this will harm the economy. But I'm saying that environmentalists themselves should be very concerned that uh, you know, we feel good having a carbon tax, thinking that it's helping the environment, but it's done nothing to curb emissions from rising at home and abroad. So if we're serious about climate change and serious about the environment, we need serious solutions. And the carbon tax is not reducing emissions. You know, that brings up the pipeline discussion and about getting cleaner, much cleaner natural Canadian natural gas to other parts of the world that are still burning coal. Because, you know, we seem to be interested in carbon tax and shutting down uh, uh, natural energy, uh, fossil fuel uh, research and development that could actually take us closer to these targets. Well, absolutely. And actually, India um, was a very uh, interesting example. Their prime minister expressed an interest in reducing India's uh, emissions uh, carbon footprint by transitioning to cleaner sources of fuel like uh, natural gas. Um, And actually, that's an area where Canada, by you know, exporting our cleaner fuels um, to developing nations around the world could actually really help to curb global emissions. We see in some countries, for example, like China, um, they're still putting up coal plants. Uh, and so even if Canada, again, were to be carbon neutral, which would be very, very expensive and burdensome on, on Canadian families, uh, even if we were to go carbon neutral, China would eat up that progress in a matter of weeks. So it really is a global, you know, climate change is a global issue um, and Canada should absolutely, uh, you know, do what it can to participate in this fight. But we're seeing carbon taxes at home are doing nothing to curb emissions here. And if we exported our cleaner fuels around the world, that would make a much greater impact than a hefty carbon tax. Jasmine Moulton has been with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Ontario Director. Uh, is the carbon tax uh, that was put in place by the Trudeau government fake environmental policy? That is the discussion. You can read the article from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jasmine, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, unless you've been under a rock, uh, you've heard or seen the video of a, a gentleman on a skateboard while uh, sipping ocean, bray, uh, ocean spray cranberry cocktail uh, and the song Fleetwood Mac Dreams playing. From what I remember, from what the story is, and Alan will correct me on this if I'm wrong, uh, guy uh, coming in to go to work and his car breaks down, he's got to get to work, so he remembers he's got the longboard in the trunk, out he goes onto <laughs> the longboard to work. Hey, you need some nutrition while you're doing all this. You need to stay hydrated. Uh, he films the video, and the rest is history, as they say. As uh, now, Fleetwood Mac is back on the charts. 
with rumors as a result of this TikTok video. Let's bring in Alan Cross, music journalist, guru, internationally known broadcaster. He's with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. So far, so good. Bored to tears, but, uh, you know, better than nothing. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Are you ever surprised now on how a pop song gets exposure uh, nowadays and how it makes it, it makes its way into our minds? Well, things have changed a lot, haven't they? You used to be able to have to get a song on the radio or a song on much music before it began to to take root in the public consciousness. Now we have all these viral things. You know, I guess it started with, with YouTube and then expanded to a, a bunch of other platforms, and including Instagram and, uh, and now TikTok, where uh, some guy somewhere, some rando, can take a song, put it to some visuals that in some way capture people's attention, and it becomes a massive global thing with some unexpected consequences and effects. And with, with this Fleetwood Mac song, which comes from the Rumors album, 1977, that album has not been on the charts since February 1978, but a lot of people have discovered Dreams and Fleetwood Mac for the very first time through the dude on the longboard with the cranberry juice. Now, uh, as you just said, this is a situation which just happened all over the world. TikTokers, YouTubers or whatever are doing their best to try to recreate a situation like this. Why does this work when you it just happens spontaneously? Yeah, you know, there's there's creators, content creators all over the world trying to get this kind of attention. Why does this work? Why when you try to create it, doesn't it? Uh, Because you never know what the public will like. This has been the big thing with the music industry from the very beginning. You don't yeah. know. You can throw as much money as you want through advertising and coercion. And if they are, if, if the, if the public doesn't bite, they don't bite. Otherwise, you know, you could, you could buy a hit and you can't. Um, in this particular case, I don't know what it is about our guy, Dogface, uh, which is the name of the guy on the longboard. Uh, I, I don't know what, what, what it is about that 30 seconds of, of him just, you know, rolling along drinking the cranberry juice mated with that song that makes it so captivating. Although it is, I mean, if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, uh, if you were to deliberately release something like that, well, first of all, who would ever think of releasing something like that? Mm-hmm. It has to. It has to come out of nowhere. It has to grow organically. It has to be word of mouth. And I guess what happens is, is if it's if it's great, and we'll use great in a in a very liberal way. If it's great, it will come to the surface. People will find it. People will tell other people, and it'll become a hit. Is it the context of this? In other words, it's the last thing you'd expect to see. You'd expect, would you expect to see, uh, a, a guy riding to work on a longboard? Okay, maybe. Do you expect him to be listening to dreams? Do you expect him to be list, or sipping on a thing of ocean spray? That's, you know, it seems like every single element contradicts the other. Does that work? Is that what it is? We just don't expect to see this sort of I, thing? I, I guess so. And like I said, when you make the song with the visuals, there's some kind of magic that happens, and it becomes hypnotic. Uh, who can who could predict that sort of thing? Certainly not our friend Dogface. He had no idea. He was just goofing. But uh, you know, look look what's happened. Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album is back in the top ten 
on the Billboard album charts for the first time in 42 years. And they have since seen their streaming numbers absolutely explode as people go, oh, yeah, that song. Or, hey, that's a good song. Let's listen to it. Or, hey, i got to go buy my Fleetwood Mac Rumors album again or, 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 or whatever. Now, it also helped that Mick Fleetwood saw the video and basically um, recreated it, it himself mm-hmm. <laughs> outside his house, you know, drinking cranberry juice. And then Stevie Nicks did exactly the same thing on some roller skates. So, uh, you know, the band helped it along as well. That, that could never have been expected. But why did the band do it? Because they were hypnotized by the same thing that we were. Is, is, yeah, it's a good not, point. It, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, hey, this is our song. Uh, let's have some fun. I mean, we're in lockdown. We can't do much. Let's have some fun. And, and the barrier to entry of this is zero. I mean, if you've got a smartphone and a TikTok account, anybody can do this. And this isn't the first time, too, uh, because we have seen over the last couple of years a number of artists suddenly find their songs being used as, as dance routines or viral, viral video background uh, on TikTok. There was a song called Break My Stride by Matthew Wilder. Yeah, came out in ni- 1983. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an oldie song. It's, it's something that, that rarely comes up anywhere these days. Somebody used it as a dance video in, in a TikTok. I mean, on TikTok. And uh, all of a sudden it blew up. And everybody's, you know, you know, Matthew Wilder's going, why am I getting all these emails? Why, 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 why are my streaming numbers going up? Well... TikTok. So do you think Fleetwood Mac is in discussions with Ocean Spray on turning this into a commercial? Or are you best to leave this? Well, Ocean Spray already sent the guy a truckload of uh, cranberry juice. <laughs> they already did. They did that within uh, within a week of this starting to blow up. And now I think the more interesting thing is that uh, in this age of, of all the in the music industry, you have people in A&R departments and marketing departments and record labels all over the world thinking exactly what we're talking about. How do we replicate this? How do we do this? How can we plant the seeds for lightning in a bottle? And uh, people are working on it right now. You just know they are. And, you know, TikTok is, is, is of course, a, a big issue with uh, President Trump because he believes that it's a security risk to the United States, and he's been um, threatening to ban it from uh, American app stores. Uh, because it's owned by a company called ByteDance out of, out of China. And um, <laughs> you can bet that record labels are going, no, 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 no. Don't, don't ban it because it's, it's actually helping our business, helping our American business. You can't ban it. So we'll see what happens. Do you think that, you know, part of a record deal or a management deal, in the old days it used to be always, you know, backing up the single with a video of some sort. You're talking about much music days and such. Um, that being said, is now the pressure being put on these artists to promote themselves somehow uh, digitally or on social media? I mean, I can think of Walk Off the Earth and them doing the, uh, the, the playing it where they're all playing the guitar at once, which certainly, certainly catapulted them into the, into the stratosphere. Is a lot of effort being put into social media to try to use it to, to, as some sort of bait to, to get these songs heard? If you do not have social media strategies, you have no career. That's basically yeah. what it is. Uh, Walk off the earth. Uh, I remember seeing that video and it had 5,000 views and then it blew up until into something in the hundred millions or, or wherever it was and got them on Ellen and basically was their breakthrough for, for their entire career. People are always looking for ways to weasel their way in. Oh, that's a bad way of putting it. People are looking for ways to, to rise above the noise 
that's out there. What can we do that will capture the public's attention in a way that is cheap and effective? And we're, we're seeing that because, you know, again, the barrier to entry is so low. You think about some of the videos that we used to see on Much Music back in the 1990s, and they'd have budgets of, you know, $2 million, $4 million, $6 million for a single music video. Yeah. Which made sense back then because a really big music video would translate into lots of CD sales. Now that's not what we're doing. We, we don't sell, you know, CDs, you know, whatever. It, it, up somewhere around 70% of record labels' profits uh, come from streaming. So what we, what the labels and the publishers and the composers and the producers are doing is that they're looking for ways to boost their streams. And uh, you don't have to make a, a big budget video. You can get some, you know, jamoke on a, on a skateboard to do it for free. And all of a sudden everybody's making money, but you have to wait for, you can't force it. You yeah. just have to, you know, one of the things that you have to do is you have to go to TikTok and make sure that, you know, royalties are being paid and, the, you know, everything's being sorted out from a, from a legal point of view, which has been a problem with, with, uh, you know, TikTok and Twitch, which is another platform in the past. Now though, um, you know, that's where, where the lawyers are going to go. That's where the money's going to go because there's obviously money to be made here. All right, can't let you go, Alan, without asking you about the passing of Spencer Davis, obviously launching the career of uh, of Steve Winwood and such. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, Spencer Davis was one of the uh, uh, people who were part of the whole British blues scene back in the 1960s, along with um, uh, with uh, John Baldry and, uh, and and a few others. Uh, and he fires... <laughs> He brings in this kid, this sixteen-year-old kid, Stevie Wonder or Stevie Winwood, to to sing on songs like "Give Me Some Lovin' and I'm a Man," and uh, launched his career and uh, made a place for himself in, in in British blues rock history. Alan Cross has been with us, music journalist, internationally known broadcaster, talking about Fleetwood Mac and the cranberry juice and the TikTok video. You know about it all. Uh, Alan, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. You bet. Uh, a mission today, a NASA mission today, will be making history as it attempts to collect material from an asteroid. Yeah, how does that work? Let's bring in Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, York University. He is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am indeed, Scott. Big, exciting day, though, in the world of space exploration. Uh, whenever it's dull here on Earth, there's always something of interest going on up there. Before we get to what's going on with this asteroid, I just thought of something, because, again, we just had two astronauts go up to the International Space Station, a Russian and an American, I believe. What happens, or how do they deal with sickness on the International Space Station? What happens if someone falls ill? Well, it was three of them, actually. It was two Russians and an American who just went up. Um, I guess the short answer is carefully. I mean, you know, there's, there's normally a degree of medical training that's associated with all astronaut training. Uh, before astronauts go up into orbit, they're in a quarantine uh, situation. So long before any pandemic struck here on Earth, astronauts went into quarantine prior to their launch and on occasions get pulled because they have contracted something and then they bring in one of their backup crews. Uh, so they make every effort not 
to transmit any type of uh, disease, flu, what have you, to the International Space Station, and they've been very successful. But the, uh, in the eventuality that something does happen, the medical training upstairs has normally been enough uh, to deal with it. And to the best of my knowledge, no serious outbreak has taken place on the International Space Station in the 20 years that they have been on board. All right, let's talk about this mission. Explain to us exactly what's happening in layperson terms. So OSIRIS-REx is a spacecraft that is currently in orbit around an asteroid by the name of Bennu. It's about 900 metres in diameter, big rubble pile flying through space. At the moment, it's about 300 million kilometres from us. OSIRIS-REx itself is a spacecraft that uh, launched in 2016 and is now literally inching its way, centimetering its way towards the surface. And the plan is at about 6.12 tonight for a big extended arm to reach out from OSIRIS-REx and literally kiss the surface and snag one to two kilograms of dirt and then bring it back to Earth. Uh, as you can imagine, though, that I say that in three sentences, but we've got a rock that is moving through space at, oh, give or take a bit, 25 kilometers a second. It is spinning on its axis once every four and a half hours. And this spacecraft has got to match all of those speeds and kiss the surface without hurting itself. It's not easy. And it's all being done on autopilot because it is so far away. Will, uh, will those in master control be able to watch all of this going on? We are getting telemetry. We won't be able to watch it as in video, TV, and so on. There's just not enough bandwidth from the spacecraft to send that back to Earth. But as you can imagine, there is sort of health checks uh, and uh, so on that are being continually transmitted from the spacecraft back to Earth. So we will know how the spacecraft is faring, what it is detecting based upon the pre-programming, and whether or not all is going according to plan. In, in NASA speak, is it going nominally? We will know that second by second, minute by minute, and that will be all broadcast, actually, on NASA TV uh, live starting at 5 o'clock this evening. So what are they? So basically, and if I, you know, I can imagine what this looks like. Uh, this thing's obviously mirroring this asteroid. All of a sudden, this thing will come out and it will literally grab stuff off the surface and pull it back inside and bring it back down to us. Almost. Uh, so it's, it's basically a, a big funnel that uh, goes over the surface. And then they've got a nitrogen, compressed nitrogen bottle in there that they're going to eject uh, the, the nitrogen gas out, stir up the surface. And with this big funnel, capture that stirred up rock and debris uh, inside the funnel, inside the collector itself. Uh, so it's not actually sort of like digging like a shovel. It positions itself over the surface. And then we're hoping that the compressed gas will blow sufficient material into the capture vessel for it to uh, bring home to Earth one to two kilograms of material. And once this is going to happen, uh, you said in the six o'clock hour tonight, how long before this gets back to Earth? Well, first off, we've got to figure out whether or not material got into the capture vessel. Uh, the Japanese Space Agency uh, tried a similar maneuver back about uh, ooh, 12 years ago and only brought back milligrams of material, literally just fractions of, of uh, the asteroid it was in orbit around. So the very first thing that's going to happen tomorrow after they have done this touch and go is they're going to look inside the, uh, the capture vessel and see whether or not they can see soil. And then they're going to do a bit of a physics experiment where they're going to determine the moment of inertia of the spacecraft, and that will tell us exactly how much new material is on board. 
If they get the one to two kilograms, they will then wait for the uh, trajectory of uh, Bennu at Earth to line up and they will bring their spacecraft home. I think it's destined for about 2023. Uh, but if there's not enough material, they've got nitrogen on board, two more, uh, they've got three in total uh, bottles to go back in and do this all over again, and that would start in January. So uh, today is hopefully going to be all that they need, but they've got two more attempts planned before the trajectory return in 2023. Do scientists have any idea what they're going to find? Is this a fishing mission or is just a confirmation of what they may already know? No, Bennu is uh, you know, a time capsule uh, from the earliest moments of the solar system's formation. So this is a pristine, uh, original material type object. It has not been processed uh, by you know, planetary uh, activities. So this is an object which we believe contains pristine material from four and a half billion years ago. And it's carbon rich. It's also uh, what we call an, uh, a near-Earth asteroid. So this is one of those objects which potentially could slam into us. Uh, so going there and digging into the surface, bring that material back to the labs here on Earth so that we can really investigate the uh, material gives us insight not only to the way the solar system formed and potentially the way Earth and its life formed, but it gives us an understanding of the characteristics of a potentially hazardous object. So there is multiple facets to this mission uh, and why Bennu itself was selected. Well, I guess we know what Paul Delaney is going to be doing in the six o'clock hour tonight. Uh, Paul Delaney, (laughs) (laughs) Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, York University, a mission today making history as it attempts to collect material from an asteroid. Well, it is buzzing around above us. Paul is always fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.